Hey there, and welcome to the Morning Coffee Podcast, where we get down, dirty, and real with talk about grief. I am your host, Brooke Carlock, and thank you for joining us. Today, we have an awesome guest, Mr. Mike Bernhardt, so let's get to the show. Good morning, everyone. It's almost afternoon here for me, but the rest of you, if you're anywhere else, it's morning still for you guys. So this is Morning Coffee. I am Brooke Carlock, and I am super excited about my guest today. His name is Mike Bernhardt, and he is the editor of a book called Voices of the Grieving Heart. We're going to have an awesome discussion today about his grief story, how it led to the book, and he specializes in helping people process grief through poetry. So I am really excited to hear about that today. So without further ado, we're going to welcome Mike to the stage. Hello, Mike. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. And if anyone that is watching has any comments or questions or anything for either of us, feel free to drop those in the chat as we go. All right. So, um, I guess we could just start off with sort of hearing your story and how it led to your book. If you want to start there. Sure. Um, so my first wife died 30, almost 32 and a half years ago, which is amazing that it's been that long. She was 31 when she died. So oh. it's been kind of a strange experience that she's been gone longer than she lived. Um, yeah. But um, anyway, we've been married for about seven years. When we first met, she told me all about her congenital heart condition. Um, so, but we didn't expect that it was going to end her life so soon. Um, okay. And um, yeah, so she had started on a new medication and it didn't, it, she had a bad reaction to it. And a couple of days later, she was gone. And um, so, you know, that was, I'm sure many of your listeners know exactly what that's like. I mean, my, uh, you know, as uh, the ground was out from under my feet, it was, there was just nothing. I didn't understand anything anymore. You know, what yeah. everything I thought was important wasn't important anymore. And um, one of the things that I began to do uh, pretty quickly and I, I guess when I was a teenager, I had done some writing of poetry um, and it just sort of came naturally to me again. Whenever I was in pain, I seemed to want to write. And I kept a journal and I wrote poetry um, and it started to become more and more meaningful to me to do that. And there was a certain point along the way, I don't know, a few months in, a, a year in, I, I couldn't really tell you anymore where I started to look for poetry from other people who'd lost people they loved. And I didn't really find a lot out there. I mean, no, there, was, there was, yeah, there was published poetry from, you know, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, people like that. Um, but um, nothing that was kind of current and meaningful to me, the language in, you know, language has changed and the right. language from the 19th, earliest 20th century just didn't, it, it didn't, do it for me. And I, I just wanted something that was very direct and powerful. And um, so um, I didn't really find anything. And my therapist and I had this idea, what if I put out some submissions and asked for it? 
Um, and so I went to the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Center, which doesn't exist now, it's the foundation, but right. she was still around and I put an ad in their newspaper. Um, I put an ad on Compassionate Friends um, and I put an ad out with the, uh, the National Unitarian Universalist Church uh, newspaper. Because this was 1990, she died in 1991. So, you know, there wasn't, it <clears throat> wasn't really an internet yet. Right, pre-internet, yeah. Yeah, I mean, America Online was the internet. As, <laughs> the dial-up with the, you know, screeching, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, the, the old modem. and Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I put out news, I put out um, requests for submissions there. And what I asked for was, I said, I wasn't so much interested in the literary quality of the poetry as I was in what it had to say about how they were feeling about yeah. their loss. And um, I received about 200 submissions wow. from a lot of people, multiple countries, Australia, um, England, Portugal, the US, Canada. And uh, I mean, it was just amazing. And what I ended up doing back then was I took 65 of the poems, I kind of started to sort them out. And some of them meant something to me and some didn't. Um, and I just, I decided that I wanted to make a book out of it to create the book that I wished I'd been able to find in the bookstores. And so I took 65 of those poems from 45 different contributors. Um, one of the contributors was me. And I turned it into a book. I probably have a copy of it here. Yeah, so this was, this was the original copy okay. uh, and I, I self-published it. I designed the cover myself on a little nine inch Macintosh computer. And um, <clears throat> so I, I did that and then um, my life sort of came back together. I met someone new, um, we got married. Um, a few years later, uh, we had a son and I started a new career and, you know, life goes on. And um, that sort of all went into the background. And, but always, I don't know, maybe for 20 years or so, that was kind of it. It was that thing that I had done and the experience that I'd had. And it wasn't that I didn't learn a lot from it. I mean, my relationship with my second wife was so much more, um, loving and and mature because of the experience i'd had with my first wife and yeah, going through absolutely. that grief and you know being kind of ripped open um and having to sort of you know you you don't uh, i don't know um what your audience is like exactly but um you know if <laughs> if you're in the middle of it it's you know it's just it's horrendous, but you do come out the other side eventually. And um, some people choose to have a relationship and some don't. I was 34 uh, when my first wife died and I was certainly determined to have another relationship. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so life went on and then the pandemic hit. And every once in a while I'd been thinking that it might be nice to republish that book and just give it to an organization uh, that supports grief work or whatever. And the pandemic hit and my wife, my current wife said, you 
have got to republish that book. There was so much grief in the world. And uh, so I put out another call for submissions. What I was thinking was I would take the same book, but I would add a couple of new poems to it that related to grief during the pandemic when people were so isolated. Right. Um, and I received another 200 submissions. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and many of them had to do with the pandemic and many didn't. Um, and so uh, again, I sorted through them. And um, so this is the new book and okay. it's got uh, over 150 poems from 80 contributors. Wow. So and is it, does it include the second edition? Does it still include the poems from the first edition or is it totally different? Yes. It, okay. it does include, it includes everything from the first edition plus another 90 or so wow. poems. And um yeah, and, and it was just, it was an amazing experience to do it again, because I was in such a different place. Really, I when I did the first book, I was doing it for my own healing. And the second one, I, well, I don't know that we ever stop healing, but no. <laughs> I really did the book. I was really doing it more for the world than I was doing it for me, but I still got so much more out of it. Yeah. Uh, and it it led to me um, starting to volunteer with David Kessler, who wrote uh, The Sixth Stage of Grief, Finding Meaning. And so I volunteer with him a lot, um, facilitating grief groups for people who've lost people under 50 who've lost their spouses or partners. That was my experience. And I that's amazing. Yeah, I that space. Loved him. Yeah. Did you do the core? I, I did the grief educator course through him. So oh, you did. Okay. I, yeah, that's how I yeah. got certified. <laughs> okay, yeah. So that's, that's what I did, too. I was in his first cohort. And, um, and, um, you know, really, I did it hoping that I get to meet him and, and he'd promote the book. Um, but I didn't, I didn't realize just how incredibly busy he was. And so yeah, uh, I can imagine. You know, I mean, so that that didn't really happen, but it didn't matter because I, it's so satisfying to be able to support people. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And the, another course that I did was called, um, oh, gosh, I can't remember what it was called now, but it was uh, it was about. Um, it was to support people in expressing themselves through poetry. Um, poetry is a tool of wellness. That's what it was called. Oh, that's great. And um, and that kind of helped me learn how to um, use poetry uh, to encourage people to write poetry. Um, and also the man who wrote the foreword for this edition of the book is, is named John Fox, and he runs an organization called the Institute for Poetic Medicine. Oh, that's amazing. And, uh, yeah. And so that organization is kind of dedicated to... Um, helping people in prisons, helping um, refugees, um, you know, some people who've traveled from, you know, Sudan, places like that. You know, there's a woman in Washington who does that specifically with children who are refugees, uh, who are in school, the school she works in, people speak like 50 different languages or something. There's a lot of refugees from all over the world there. So she helps them through poetry, initially in their own language, um, to express 
their experience of life, what they've gone through, you know, um, leaving their country, um, for prisoners, just being able to express what they've had to experience and, and, um, you know, maybe what they've learned about themselves having to sit there for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I find with poetry being, because, you know, I've done the journaling and, and writing and my blog and everything. And, and poetry is a little bit different, I think, in that you have to really think more carefully about your words. So it's kind of taking all of those big emotions and then dialing it down to, you know, just a much smaller form that still expresses everything you want to express. I think it makes sometimes makes you stop and and think about how you're feeling on a deeper level so that you can express it in that form. So I don't know if you've found the same thing, but um, I, yeah. I read your actually I watched the video of you reading your poem Sunday uh -huh. um, about about your wife's death. And that was extremely moving. And I think people sometimes get confused when they think poetry, they think everything has to rhyme and, and be perfect. And, right. and it's not like your poem Sunday. It's so powerful. I mean, for the, the viewers who haven't read it, it's, um, it's basically about you being at the hospital and then going home and then having to rush back to the hospital and, your wife had already passed at that point. I don't, can you kind of talk me through writing that poem and what that was like for you? Yeah. Um, I'll talk about it and then I'm happy to read it for you too. Yeah. That would be amazing. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So that's that particular, there's a couple things I wanted to say. Um, what I teach people when I do, when I do workshops for this is that, I mean, poetry, yes, you have to distill things down, but on the other hand, there's a freedom because you don't have to worry about having proper sentences. You don't mm -hmm. have to worry about, you know, does it, well, certainly you don't have to worry about does it rhyme? Although there is one poet in the current edition who he makes everything rhyme. He's He's got a meter. It's like a Dr. Seuss poem. Wow. It's, yeah. it's about his son dying from a drug overdose. Mm. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking, but to just, if you just heard the rhythm of it, you'd say, oh, it's a children's story, you know, a children's poem. Oh, um, and it's just how he likes to do things. But um, so really, I think there's a freedom in poetry because it doesn't have to make sense to anyone but you uh, as, the, as the writer. And it, it's really, it can access a different part of the brain. I, what I tell people is when I, when I journaled and when most of us journal, we're kind of trying to explain things to ourselves, which can be really useful to take the time to sit and, and just write about what we've experienced and what it seems like and how we understand it. But many times my journal entries led to a poem and it, it kind of accesses a different part of the brain. And it takes maybe a little bit of practice, but the, you know, sometimes an image would come and I would just try to describe the image in a poem rather than trying to understand the image and what mm -hmm. it meant. Um, there's one poem that I wrote and I'll get to Sunday and the story behind it. Um, it was really short and I will have to find it here for you and read it. Sure. Okay. 
it's normally I could just recite this one for you because it's so short, but I'm. Uh, That's okay. While we're uh, waiting here, Tony Lynch yeah, is in the house. I see Tony. Hi, Tony. <laughs> Tony was my last guest on Morning Coffee. So. Oh. Oh, I forgot to ask what you were drinking, Mike. I do like your mug. Oh. I saw your mug there, but <laughs> yeah, I have my mug. I'm drinking uh, Earl Grey tea with a little bit of half and half in it. Ah, a tea person. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually I drink coffee, but I just prefer to do that now. Well, I can't find it, but I know it. Okay. It was called um, Buds at the End of Winter. And it goes, my grief lives on in me, an, oldie, an old moldy stump rotting soft in the woods, or a tree in late winter, buds appearing red and green on bare branches. And I wrote that in a nap on a napkin in a hamburger store. Um, oh my gosh. Restaurant just while I was waiting for my hamburger to come. Yeah. And it was, and you know, somebody asked me to explain it once. And I couldn't really. I mean, there there was just imagery of this kind of old grief that just sort of sat there and was growing softer. And then the just, you know, a tree with new branches, new buds appearing on it, you know. And I mean, I don't know what there is to explain. For me, it seems clear. It was just right. something you know, the old stuff and the new stuff kind of at, at the same time. And, and all of it was just sort of very soft. And, um, and I just wrote the image, you know, and yeah. Um, yeah I so that. I love that. And I think I, I feel like that with my, with the losses that I've had, but especially my daughter, like all you do in grief. And I don't think you realize until you're in it or you've experienced something like that, that the simplest moments can hit you. Like it's weird. The things that kind of remind you of your grief and yeah. kind of hit you at certain times. And it's things that you wouldn't, wouldn't expect, you know, there are things I feel like I'm, I'm reminded of my daughter about a million times a day in so many tiny little ways that everybody else would be like, what in that? <laughs> and sometimes it even surprises me, the things that remind me of her and remind me of that grief. So I love that. I love those those tiny little moments that that mean a lot, but really, you know, sometimes only you understand right. what it's doing to you. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and that's one of the hard things too, I think, because you're with other people and they may be people who love you, but there are those little things that that happen that remind you of your of your grief and and you feel it and you can't really talk about it you know because you're having breakfast with your friend and right you know they're talking about whatever the stuff at their job and you know and you're like all of a sudden not quite there you're somewhere else you know yeah um so what happened with the poem sunday was i had been feeling kind of a wave of shock come over me every once in a while i think you know my wife's death was very sudden and it was a bit traumatic for me um, because of the way it happened. Right. Uh, there was a point where she, in fact, I wrote a poem about that um, only about two years ago that I realized that I had never quite, I woke up after a disturbing dream 
And what was there for me was the trauma around her death, like at the time, 31 years ago. Hmm. Um, and I realized I had just never quite processed that um, and really looked at that. It was all about what happened after she died um, and her death itself. And um, so I sat down and I wrote a poem about that. Uh, and so this poem is called Sunday, which was the morning she died. This one I called Saturday night. Oh, okay. And so that, that trauma kind of, I, I would just be, I remember once I was standing in the kitchen and all of a sudden I just got kind of woozy and I had to hold on to the counter. Um, and that happened every couple of months or so where it would just, that trauma would just wash over me, like, you know, and, um, and one time it happened while I, I was driving on the, on the highway. And I just told, at that point I had been writing for a, a little while and I just said to myself, I can't do this now, mm. but when I get home, I'm going to write about this. And I was able to kind of put it away. And as soon as I got home, I sat down in front of that little teeny nine inch Mac and I closed my eyes and I just, and then I just drop into the feeling. And then I started writing the poem and I worked on it a little bit, but what I have here is pretty much what it had started out to be. And so okay. it's called Sunday. Together, we survived the terrifying night of CPR and defibrillation, too many tubes and wires and doctors my kisses on your forehead and your eyes kissing me back until your EKG exploded and they told me to leave. I sat outside in the hallway talking softly with you. In the morning, though your eyes seemed empty, I expected your recovery and went home to sleep, only to be greeted by a ringing phone and an urgent voice, and I was out again, stuck in traffic on the Bay Bridge praying, screaming at God to get me to you in time. Hoping that curses and prayers might be enough, I inched and fought my way through traffic and despair until finally free, nearly drowning, I plunged into the straits, racing to San Francisco General. Sometimes now I like to imagine what I would have told the police if they'd noticed. I like to think that I wouldn't have pulled over I would have just plummeted on at 70 miles an hour up Petrero Avenue, letting them catch up to me in the parking lot as I ran inside. My wife's dying, I would have screamed. But they didn't notice. I ran inside alone to find my friends crying and you dead. Oh, that is heart-wrenching. That's how it was. I mean, what was that like for you? If you don't mind, like going back there, and and I feel like that kind of, I mean, it sums up the getting there. But the fact that you were too late is that, I mean, for you, is that the trauma that you go back to a lot, or I don't know what was that like for me? I think the trauma was more, you know, the previous night. Um, she suddenly, I, I was in one in the bedroom and she was in the other room and I heard her collapse onto the floor, um, cause she'd had a cardiac arrest and, um, 
you know, that was pretty terrifying. And I ran in there and I was pounding on her chest and calling, you know, 911. Actually, I called the host, I called her doctor or cardiologist first. Um, and then she woke up. Um, and she didn't know what had happened. She said, Oh, I must have fallen asleep. She didn't realize she'd actually collapsed on the floor. And so I took her to the hospital right away. But that she was, I was, I live in, if you know the geography, I live in San Francisco's East Bay, okay. across the San Francisco Bay. But um, because they had a really good cardiology department, her doctor and hospital were in San Francisco at San Francisco General Hospital. Um, that may not be the case anymore, that they're the only ones that could really work with that. But at the time, that was that was really the best place for her. So I and that so I drove her across the bridge to San Francisco General and it happened again in the car that you know that her heart stopped I could I saw it and um, so that was the stuff that was so traumatic it was the yeah. rushing to get her to the hospital but this was too because I'd been with her all night and I'd gotten home about nine in the morning or something to try to get some sleep and then I got the phone call. And I went back around and she died at about 11, I guess. Mm. Um, so. Oh, that's so hard. My my uh, brother's wife died and she was in her 30s as well. And it was after a long, she had been through a long illness, but he still says that one of his most traumatic experiences with the whole thing was um, kind of similar in that she was having seizures in the car and he was driving her to the hospital and she had a really bad seizure like next to him mm -hmm. in the passenger seat. And he said, yeah, he, <laughs> that was, it, he said that was absolutely terrifying, like not knowing if he was going to get her to the hospital in time. So yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah and that's what the poem Saturday night was mostly about, you know, and, and um, yeah, I. <laughs> Tony I says that. he got goosebumps from, from you reading the poem. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's fantastic. Yeah. So then, you know, the book itself, what happened was I organized it into sections um, because when I received those first 200 poems back in the 90s, I just I was I sort of sorted them based on what sort of a, what kind of an experience they were expressing. And some of them were about the death like that one was. Um, some of them were just about the, the 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 intense grief and the and the rage and the shock and the you know all of the stuff that happens right after sometimes mm -hmm. um, just the incredible pain that we experience uh, when things are so raw and um, so I called the first chapter I decided to organize them that way and this was a couple of years later sort of based on my own experience of grief. It's like, oh, this is kind of like what I experienced when she died. And, you yeah. know, so and I chose um, either lines or titles of poems for the chapters, the chapter titles. And then I wrote a little something about the experience, my experience, at least of, of each of those uh, sort of I won't call them stages because, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross hated the term stages too. Yeah. I mean, she used it at, back in the 60s when she was talking about uh, death and dying. And it sort of didn't, she used it for grief too, but it didn't really quite work. And she 
apparently spent the rest of her life trying to explain to people these are not stages. It's not the linear process. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so she knew that too. And she's, you know, she hated that the media sort of picked up on this easy thing, five stages of grief, and turned it into to the point where people expect that, oh, you know, I have this, now I'm going to have that experience. Yeah, like you're going to graduate. Why am I having that other experience again? There's something wrong with me, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. not that way. So, um, so the first chapter I called Someone Died Today, uh, which was a title of a poem uh, that a woman wrote about her brother after he died of AIDS, because uh, this was... She wrote it in 1990, I think, when AIDS people were still, a lot of people were still yeah. dying from AIDS. Um, the second chapter was called uh, The Raging Storm. And that was about, you know, yeah, those days or weeks or months afterward when it just, it's so hard. Um, and, um, you know, when we really feel like we're a ship caught in the storm lost at sea and we don't right. know if we're going to survive. Um, the next chapter is called But You Elude Me, and that's just about the sort of day-to-day, -day, the sort of ache, the feeling, the loss, the everything is kind of gray. Um, there doesn't seem much point to going on, uh, yeah. but we do. Um, and then in, in this book, at that point, I put in a new chapter about the pandemic, which, of course, wasn't in the first one. And that was all poems that related relative direct relatively directly about the pandemic okay but not so much death although there were a couple about that um but like there was one uh, a couple actually about having a service on zoom and what that was like rather than being able to be with the people who love that person and, yeah. and hug and you know and have food together and you know do all of the things that we do that was such a huge aspect to that, to grief for people who went through that and just not being able to be in the room and having, you know, you hear so many stories about people having to be outside, like, you know, waving through windows and yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I did not have to go through that experience like so many people did. Yeah. And then there was another, uh, another chapter. Some people sent me, poems about dreams that they had, like vivid dreams about about the person who died. And I had had a dream like that and written a poem about it. And I didn't didn't occur to me that anyone else would have. And so um, I ended up with a poem there uh, with uh, five poems about about that. And so I can say I can read that one, the one I wrote about that as well. Sure. Um, I would love to hear anything you want to read. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are mine. I'd like to read someone else's too, but this one I'm going to read just because we, you can sort of follow my own journey a little bit. And yeah. there's another one I'd like to read later. So this one I called Resurrection. How could you be here? I don't know, you answered. But we smiled and embraced, love washing through us. As I closed my eyes to listen and you spoke to me of dying. I remember it was 11 o'clock. They were wheeling me out of the room. Then I was trying to get back, running through the corridors, but I couldn't find the room. I didn't realize. You recalled it with a sense of wonder. No pain, no fear, a magical adventure. 
And as you spoke, an all-encompassing quiet joy, your heart smiling, my heart opening. But I awoke too soon, feeling you in my arms as you evaporated. I laughed, then cried, your words echoing in my ears so loudly I still hear them. Oh. And that was really healing to have that dream, you know, to just know she was okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that is incredibly moving. Yeah. And I love how I love how it's moving you know, even now when I read it and I wrote it 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah, I can hear it. You can hear it in your voice that it, that it's emotional for you. But I mean, I think that's think something that people who have gone through a deep loss understand that it doesn't you can move forward and your life goes on, but it's always still there and that person is still with you, you know. Yeah, and I don't remember her with pain anymore. Yeah. You know, David Kessler talks about remembering people with more love than pain. Right. There's no pain. It's all love. Um, but it's still moving, you know. Um, and I'm glad that it is. I, mm -hmm. I don't want, you know, one of the things, and I, I, I want to say this just because, you know, for your audience's sake, people... I, and I see this all the time in, in the grief group that I facilitate, you know, people, I, I was afraid that if I stopped hurting, I would forget about her. And what I can say after 32 years is you will stop hurting, but you won't forget. I just remember her with love now instead of, yeah. instead of the hurt. So... Yeah, it's okay to stop hurting, you know. I I tell people that all the time. It, it, well, so many people think like if I'm if I'm moving on or moving forward, does that mean that I'm like getting over it? That I you know, I almost feel guilty starting to feel better. Like, did I not love my person enough that I'm able to smile and laugh and find joy? You know, so many people kind of hesitate to even feel that because they feel guilty about it. And it's, yeah. No, you know. No. Yeah. I have a friend whose husband died and, you know, he, she, she learned to say I'm moving forward with him, not, mm. you know, from him. Yes. Yeah. You grow around your grief, you know, yeah. rather than, your grief leaving, you get bigger. Yeah. <laughs> the grief doesn't get smaller. You just get better at, at living with it. Yeah. Yeah. And it smooths out and it becomes less painful. And, you know, and it, but it's, I think it's for most people, at least it's always there. Yeah. But just, kind yeah, of it's, it's great to hear you talk about it though, being further out. I'm sure that's providing a lot of hope for people to hear that from your perspective. So. Yeah. That. And, you know, and I, I've been married now for 30 years and, um, um, you know, but my, I wouldn't have married someone who couldn't um, be with all of me, including the grief, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, she, I, I cried in her arms a lot for a while, you know, and that was when I knew she was the right person because yeah. I could do that and she didn't, <laughs> she didn't take it as a personal affront. 
That's um, a keeper. That's a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So then the in the the poems kind of move through to um, kind of moving toward healing. Um, you know, there's there's a a, a chapter in here called um, oh boy, begin to heal. And so these are all poems where it's not really that you're uh, okay now, but you're starting to see changes in yourself. Um, you're starting to find a little bit more lightness, some of the time at least, um, and kind of coming to understand, you know, who you are without that person somewhat. Um, and um, and then the next chapter was the the last chapter in the first edition was called the Breath of Great Spirit. And that was um, really about, again, not letting go, but um, but really being able to say goodbye to that life, um, to um, yeah, to just to feel the love rather than the pain. Um, but then what I what happened was um, I decided when I was working on the second edition to try to recontact people who had submitted poetry for the first one. Oh wow. Okay. And um, and the, the reason that the reason was I had read uh, Kessler's book, and I came up with some questions I wanted to ask about um, finding meaning. Like, what meaning had they found in not so much in the loss, but you know, but just in 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 their growth, I guess one might say. Um, and so I, I was. It turned out I was able to um, get in touch with about 35 of the of the original 45 people oh, wow. um, and some of them didn't weren't interested in, in answering my questions but i asked them a bunch of questions like you know what did you wish what do you wish you knew then that you know now um you know what what meaning have you found um what you know how how did it change you um that kind of thing and yeah. 17 people answered my questions and so I put that into a new chapter called Time Passes um, because these were all people who had experienced their loss a long time ago. And so what I did was I took the answers to their questions and I edited them, edited them into short essays, like 500 words or so mm -hmm. or less, and, uh, and then sent those back to them to ask them, you know, is this what you intended to, was this what you would like people to hear from you? And they made the changes they wanted to make. And then I put them in the book. And some of those people had written poems relatively recently too. Um, and so I included those as well. So that chapter I think is really kind of unique because you don't often get to hear from so many people who've had old losses. Right. Yeah, um, that is fascinating. Were there any, com did you find any common themes, you know, that, that you heard from those people? Or can you share any of the yeah. experiences um, that they've had? I mean, there's yeah, there's so this there's a woman named uh, Mara Titel Shade. Uh, when I first met her, she was just Mara Titel, um, and um, she her has her um, brother died from cancer when she was in her twenties, and um, and so she wrote. She had she wrote a couple of wonderful poems that were in the first edition of this book, and when I contacted her, it turned out she had just written this poem like a month before, um, 
And it was about, she has a ring that belonged to her brother that she wears all the time. She had it resized and everything. And um, it's called Your Ring. So I, I can read that for you. Sure. I'm sure the metal remembers you in its cold, uncompromising way. Not like my memories, which shift and alter, creating their own realities. I wear your ring, plain gold, your initials etched on the simple flat top in curlicue letters, which make them almost illegible. If I stare long enough though, they come into focus. I really don't remember if you ever wore this ring, but it is my keepsake of you. My talisman that lets me believe you're still looking after me, protecting me like a big brother should. Maybe it doesn't have a memory of you, it's metal never bent to the shape of your finger. But my flesh, connected to your metal, fills the hole you left behind. Oh, that's great. Hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. So you said now you work with people who are grieving to help them kind of express themselves through poetry? Yeah, yeah. You run workshops and things Sometimes, like that. So, yeah. so for it's people who are watching, time. could you maybe talk about either where they should start or, or um, what are the benefits of, of doing that? Just kind of talk, I guess, if you could just talk a little bit about, about the process of writing poetry to kind of, you know, how it can help with your grief. Yeah, well, what I can do... So one thing that also is new in this book is I put in, um, I wouldn't exactly call it a chapter, maybe a, um, an afterword almost in this book called Courage to Write. Hmm. And so it, I just put in a page encouraging people to write poetry. And then I put uh, 10 blank pages at the back. Oh, that's so great. That if people write poems, they can add them to the book and sort of maybe feel like, you know, they've made their contribution to their own copy. Um, so I'll, um, I'll read this just because it kind of, I think, says what you're asking. Sure, for. yeah. So it starts with a quote from John Fox, who I mentioned, the Institute for Poetic Medicine, and he wrote a book called Poetic Medicine. Poetry is natural medicine. It is like a homeopathic tincture derived from the stuff of life itself, your experience. Poems speak to us when nothing else will. Poetry helps us to feel our lives rather than just be numb. The page touched with our poem becomes a place for painful feelings to be held, explored, and transformed. And then I wrote, I invite you to join the contributors to this book in expressing your own grief for yourself through poem making. The next 10 pages are blank reserved for your voice, for your own poems or writing. The contributors to this book found validation, insight, and healing in expressing their experience through poetry. And then there's a quote here from one of the contributors that she sent me um, when she sent me the poem that she wrote. I carried the grief of losing my daughters for 20 years until I wrote about it. Gradually in the writing, the healing press process began. 
If you've never written poetry, you may not know where to begin. Here's a suggestion. Pick a poem in this book that moves you, and it doesn't have to be from this book, of course, but pick a poem in this book that moves you and choose a line from that poem. Begin your poem with that line. What do you feel when you read that line and poem? What does it remind you of in your own loss? Are there sounds, smells, images, or memories that arise? Write those down. Your poem could be the remembrance of an everyday experience, something now lost that you once cherished or took for granted. It might mirror the depths of your love or reveal thoughts or feelings that frighten you, even anger at your loved one or a loss of faith in God. It's all okay. Write it all down. We can't heal if we're afraid to tend to our wounds. You may think that you can't write, that your words aren't good enough, but I assure you they're precious, worth more than anything else in this book, because they speak your truth. Your poem doesn't have to be pretty. Not everyone in this book used beautiful language. Write what's true for you. Nothing else matters. That's perfect. So, uh, yeah. It well, hopefully everyone out there is is feeling inspired. I'm feeling inspired. I, I'm inspired. I want to go write some poetry. <laughs> I've, I've honestly, like, I've written a ton of poems, but I have not yet written about grief or my losses. So, yeah. I'm, yeah. I feel, I've I done a lot of journaling and I've written letters to my daughter and things like that, but I've, I've never written poetry. And I love, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm feeling inspired to do that. So hopefully other people in my audience are feeling inspired as well. I really th do think that any sort of writing just helps so much in the processing, just getting things does. out. Yeah. And there, there's something about a poem, you know, when I, when I've written something and then as, as uh, John said in, in, in his, uh, in the part that I quoted from him, I mean, I'll read it on the page. And it's just like, yeah, that's it. You know, it's like painting a painting or something and you just know that captured what you were feeling. And yeah. boy, I mean, at least for me, words are so much easier than painting. But for some people- it <laughs> Me too, painting. I'm not an artist, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for some people it might be painting. I remember once actually I experimented, I had taken a painting class or an art class, uh, like art and spirit or something. And I used pastels to kind of try to draw an image from a dream um, that I'd had. Uh, and I think it had to do with my first wife's name was Susan. I think it had to do with her again. But it was almost like she was an angels or something. I honestly don't remember the dream anymore. Um, but then I took the painting and I decided to make a poem out of it. So I tried to put it into words. And that actually worked better for me because it was easier for me to express the emotion that I was feeling when I was seeing whatever this was that I painted, you know? Yeah. Well, anything, anything creative, I think is just a fantastic outlet. And yeah. even if you, even if you don't feel like you're very good at it, I think it's just cathartic and helpful to, to get it out there, you know, put, put those feelings out there somewhere in the ether. <laughs> <laughs> so that they're not all bottled up inside of you. 
Well, and 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 it and it does take practice, mm-hmm. you, like anything. But um, and I think that's where you know I, I just want to encourage people that you know I mean the poems I'm reading are maybe sound very finished, um, but they weren't at first. And the you know some of them I I kind of worked on and edited you know over a month or whatever it was. Or in the case of that one. Uh, buds at the end of winter well that kind of came out finished uh, but it was short I was just I think I took out the word like it was like uh, it, my grief is like an old moldy stump and I just took out the word like just made um, it a metaphor instead of a city. yeah exactly <laughs> um, but um, you know I wrote some poems that it, it that I wouldn't publish them but they were still really helpful to me to write. And, um, and that's, that's really what I was trying to say there is that it doesn't, you know, you don't have to look at this and say, this is terrible. If it says what you want it to say, it's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Keep it haiku and just be like, grief sucks. My life is terrible. <laughs> this is, I don't know, whatever, but. Yeah, actually yeah, there's a, you know, there's a there's a poem in here. A woman, again, a, a, a friend of hers, um, died also from AIDS. This was in the first book. The poem was "Richard is dead." The word sits on the page like the obscenity it is. Mm. Oh, that is <laughs> incredible! Love it. Yeah, that's that was the poem. You know, it's yeah, okay it's to so be powerful. angry. Yeah. Fantastic. I love it. So we are getting ready to wrap up here, but is there anything else that you wanted to read for us? Um, sure. There's a poem that I love. I, I cheated in the time passes section because there was one woman whom I met when I was working on this book. and um, But she had had an old loss. Her daughter had died from SIDS. Uh, a long time ago. Yeah. And um, she was just so wonderful to talk to. And she sent me these beautiful poems. And so uh, I decided to include her in that section, even though she wasn't in the first book. And so there's, um, so there's a, she wrote a poem called Elephant that I put in the time passes section along with um, her answers to my questions. Okay. You're still in the room. The room's just larger. Years spent ignoring you or else dragging out your secret life, the way a magician flourishes bouquets from milk jugs. Ta-da! Now seen, then not, enormous invisible reason for so much. And time moves on, events engulf a life. One undersized elephant gets pushed aside. Soon enough, though, you trot into view. Remove the camouflage. Remove the camouflage seems a petty, distracting trick. Oh, I'm sorry. Soon enough to trot you into view and remove the camouflage seems a petty, distracting trick. Or at least too sad to mention. People prefer a laugh than to rehearse old sorrows. But you've remained, blended effortlessly in with houses and plans, constant reminder that life is too short for injustice and squandered dreams. 
You've always been here in a room that's grown to dwarf you, my elephant, my mentor, my muse. It's me who has changed. So good. So yeah. good. So that was about her infant daughter who died. Mm -hmm. and Yeah. Incredible. So where can, if people want to get a copy of this amazing book, which I do, where do we go? <laughs> can you direct us where to find this? Sure. Um, well, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, again, Voices of the Grieving Heart. It's got this red cover. I'll put a link um, in the description for that as well. Yeah. And then um, you can also find it. I don't sell it directly, but if you go to my website, mikebernhardt.net, okay. um, just like my name, um, I've got a page there to order it. And I, I've got links to Amazon. And um, if you prefer to buy from independent bookstores, there's a link there to buy from uh, online from, well, one particular bookstore, but also uh, there's a, an organization called Indie Books. They basically, it's a nonprofit and they'll direct you to your nearest uh, bookstore that can uh, deliver it to you or, or uh, ship it to you, whatever. Okay. Um, so um, lots of links there to find it. All right. Sounds good. Well, hopefully we'll have, we'll have lots of people reaching out for that. Yeah, I'm so excited to read it. And I am excited to give poetry a shot here and get creating. Yeah. <laughs> get creating. I usually try to end, Mike, with just asking if you had any advice for someone who is just starting their grief journey, what, what would that be? Anything that you could tell someone who is kind of just beginning? You know, uh, there's a poet named David White, and I, I did a workshop with him about something, and and he said something that I thought was fantastic. He said, the only cure for grief is grief itself. And I love that. I think the thing that I gave myself when I was, when things were so hard, was just trusting that somehow the grief itself was going to lead me through um, and to just get, and everybody's different, but for me, I just gave it the time, um, you know, when it, when it said, I want you now, uh, I said, okay, <laughs> I just, all I could do, I had no choice really, but to surrender to it. Um, and fortunately I was unemployed at the time and it was easy to do. Um, but um, yeah, it's just, just if you don't fight it, if you kind of let the river take you, um, as frightening as it seems, uh, you'll find yourself in a much better place at yeah. some point. And nobody can tell you when. That's the other thing about it, I think, is don't don't let anybody tell you uh, how long that journey should be. Um, but you will find your way. I love it. Thank you so much. Oh, lost my microphone there. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Mike, for sharing for sharing the book and your story and your advice and and so many great little nuggets of advice for people there. And I I think this hopefully was inspiring and hopeful for people. So I really appreciate you taking the time to have some have some morning coffee with us, and hopefully we will see you around soon. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me here. You are very welcome. Have a good rest of your day and goodbye to everyone watching. We will see you next week. We all know that grief can leave us feeling alone, unmotivated, and even hopeless. That's why I'm so proud to have partnered with HelpText to provide a full year of ongoing expert support to my subscribers. HelpText has individualized support for caregivers, people dealing with a difficult diagnosis, or grieving the loss of a loved one, pregnancy, or even a pet. You answer questions at sign up to get specific support just for you, including two texts per week and even extra texts on special or difficult days like birthdays or anniversaries. And the best part is if you sign up using the site linked in my description, you'll get a 10% discount off of your subscription. Thank you so much to Help Text for offering this deal to my subscribers. When life gets hard, getting support from Help Text is easy.